Welcome to the Osprey Podcast. Today, we're joined by Jonathan Payne and Fergus Crawley, adventure athletes, coaches, mental health advocates. We cover a lot in this episode from the true meaning of functional fitness to looking after your mental health and, of course, how in November they took on the almighty challenge that was Project Vertical. An incredible achievement, as you'll hear, and for a great cause. There's a lot to take away from this episode, so without further ado, I'm your host, Marcus Brown, and this is the Osprey Podcast. Thanks for coming in, guys. How's it going? Both well? Not bad. Not bad. We're kind of coming to the end. Well, I say coming to the end. That's not even remotely true, but we are still in the process <laughs> of recovering. Um, we're both dealing with different hiccups, shall we say. But I think, um, yeah, in, in general terms, we're doing well, all, all things considered. I've answered for us both there, but from my perspective, I'm doing well, all things considered. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing good too, mate. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're all right. I think, as Fergus said, we're, we're both kind of suffering from niggles and injuries and a little bit of uh, uh, kind of malaise, probably. <laughs> but the uh, yeah, the, the, the general uh, uh, you know overview is we're, we're doing okay. We're doing okay. Pl- plenty to keep us, uh, keep us busy, keep us out of trouble. So good, great. Good. So to introduce you guys, your adventure athletes, uh, Johnny Payne and Fergus Crawley, and you are the architects of. Project Vertical. Firstly, have you hit a final figure for the money raised yet, or are you still taking donations? We have indeed. Let me just double check the exact figure. £42,547 as of the 6th of December, but I think there's been about two to 300 quid come in since then. So just under £43,000 is, is the best catch. Uh, okay, and with that, uh, which I'll, I'll let you guys do it, would you like to introduce what Project Vertical was? Yes, so it was um, a conquest in stupidity. I think we best we best <laughs> summarise it. But no, all, all jokes aside, the the context for this really is I was um, introduced to Johnny three over three years ago now when I committed to my first November campaign on the simple premise that I wanted to use my strengths, which at the time was squatting, to draw attention to a cause that was important to me, which was men's mental health and suicide prevention. I had a campaign in 2018, a campaign in 2019. Johnny coached me through both of them to success for the most part. My MCL gave out in year one, but I can't blame Johnny for that. Well, I haven't (laughs) that far anyway. Um, But this year, given that we wanted to scale things up, we wanted to to reach new people, because ultimately that's what this is all about. It's about sharing the message behind what we're doing with new people. And a key element of that message is that we're better fighting our uphill battles together. So Johnny put his hat in the ring, I think probably now much to his regret, (laughs) to to, to come up with me. So I, I proposed this challenge to Johnny early in the year, saying, look, this is what I'm thinking, simply because I've suffered from depression. It ended in a suicide attempt in May of 2016. And that's why I'm so passionate about Movember, so passionate about the cause and why the symbol of the mountain is so important to me because I feel it's the most relevant metaphor for the state of mind I found myself in, the state of mind that I feel a lot of people can resonate with in the sense of peaks and troughs, highs and lows, false summits. But there is always there is always a sort of summit to enjoy. There's always a peak to, to look forward to. It might seem far away. It might seem out of touch, but... In my mind, it seemed like a really, really fitting metaphor for how I felt and how I've understood other people to feel. 
So Johnny fully bought into that. We got discussing it at a deeper level and both decided the best way we could put this across was by taking it on as a unit, by fighting through it together, being open, honest, and documenting what that experience was like for us both because we both had a battles with mental health and we just want to engage other people with that conversation, with that experience. And in simple terms, the premise of the project was to encourage others to climb their own mountain. And the way in which we went about doing that was attempting to complete the world's first vertical marathon um, in 11 days, which in the end turned out to not be enough time to get what we needed done based on just some miscalculations and a few things that we only could have learned by actually diving in the deep end or stepping on the mountain, as it were. In the end, to summarize, we covered Ben Nevis 21 times up and down within the 11 days, about 26,500 meters of elevation and over 205 miles each. Um, so whilst we fell short of the sort of arbitrary number goal that we use as a hook to engage people with the cause, ultimately what we learned on about day three, day four was the process of the journey, the lessons we learned and the way that we adapted as we went actually enriched the project and made it much more valuable for us. And I hope much more valuable for those watching because the easiest thing to do when we realized actually we were going to fall short of the number goal we set ourselves was being, oh, well, that's that. We've fallen short. Let's take a step back. But we, we've climbed our own uphill battle, faced our own mountain together, and it just happened to be a different mountain on paper to the one that we'd, we'd sort of planned. But the message didn't change. The approach didn't change. It was just merely how we actually executed the remaining days. That, um, that mattered. So, a bit of a a bit of a convoluted overall summary there. But I hope the uh... <laughs> well, and I, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, so you kind of touched on it just there, but what was the thing that made you choose to do this this idea of a vertical ma marathon? Like, where did that specific idea come from? I mean. We spoke about it early days, didn't we, John? It was the end of last year. So year one for me was a big, singular physical challenge. Ultimately, my knee gave out um, due to a few things, again, that we couldn't really predict it. Um, but the process was more important than the outcome. So we learned that lesson in year one. So were you fully year recovered two. from that by the time you started this one? Yeah, yeah, I recovered from that pretty quickly. It was just a great grade, grade one tear. So it was um, 2018. It was okay. It didn't take long to come back from at all with a bit of rehab. Um, and then year two, we sort of took the approach of covering different things across the month itself rather than one big singular challenge, which was great because we learned the lesson that you can engage people consistently across the month. And then we thought, right, how can we kind of combine those things? So we had big singular challenge across a long period of time, A, a and B, the two components that we've learned up until this point. And we wanted to engage people with something that they could somewhat understand. A lot of people in the UK have done Ben Nevis. Some of them have done Snowden. They'll have some concept of, of what mountains in the UK are like. Some people will anyway. And for those that don't, they kind of, they, I'd imagine a lot of people have heard it spoken about. They'll have, they'll have seen it online, that sort of thing. So we wanted to make it quite relatable. We wanted to make it as close symbolically to what suffering with mental health feels like, I guess. And that's why we chose not to go from A to B. We ch chose not to do a, Monroe round or a Ramsey round or something like that, because the monotony of climbing, descending, climbing, descending Ben Nevis is quite fitting for what we determined our own experiences with mental health to have felt like in the past. I think that the words that we used when we kind of put the idea out there were monotony, dread, loneliness, isolation, all these things that I've experienced firsthand, Johnny's experienced firsthand, and we, we kind of settled on as, again, a fitting metaphor for what we thought 
was a really interesting way of capturing, well, providing a hook for people to engage with the cause because what we've always tried to do is try to make the physical endeavor the hook for the cause so that if you're interested in the physical side of things but might not up until that point have any reason to engage with the conversation around mental health, if you're interested in one, you can't ignore the other. So we feel that this year it's kind of done that and I know Johnny and I have learned that we, we had to deviate from the plan. So Project Vertical, kind of the, the, the plan in that sense was as, accept, as successful as we could have hoped it to be. The Vertical Marathon, we, we fell short of in terms of the actual number goal, but we are in no way feeling like we fell short of what we endeavoured to achieve, which is reassuring because I think at certain points, the personalities we both have, the fact we're both men, the fact we're both very goal-driven, very focused on certain things, means that I think we had a fear in the back of our mind that we'd we kind of lose sleep over it if we if we did fall short having put this thing out there. But the marathon itself is just again, it's a relatable term that people understand to convey the magnitude of what we set out to achieve, and in turn, that's engaged a whole lot of people with a, with a conversation around mental health that might not otherwise have happened. So that's why the moustache is part of November. So we've kind of tried to mimic the uh, the conversation starter that the moustache is with a project that means that people can't disengage from the conversation whilst engaging with the physical endeavour. Got it. Um, so in terms of the actual logistics then, you presumably you had a support team. I mean, you know, it's 11 days long. So what did your support team look like? How did it kind of, how did it work? Yeah, so it was... Um, it was broad and broader than we actually expected, wasn't it? I think um, yeah, I'll, I'll let you run through this one, actually, Johnny, because I'm conscious that I've kind of uh, <laughs> just given my own experience up until this point. But I think we've spoken about things so much together that you could kind of almost uh, type out a little script for us both to, <laughs> to reflect on at this point because we, we've, we've had to deep dive and reflect in it so much. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and, and we went through it. Uh, we went through it with the same perspective, I suppose. So it's interesting, you know. I can I can hear Fergus talk about it and, and simply nod along and think, "Yep, yep, that's what I saw too." Because we had our role in it, which was to 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 do it, you know, and to, and to be uh, uh, physically involved and, and mentally involved in the ways that Fergus has described. But um, as you as you say, there was a team around us. And what was interesting to note really was that the team grew in a certain sense with the project uh, and. Uh, it evolved as the project continued in a manner that we probably hadn't foreseen. So initially we had um, we had a, a base camp manager, uh, Doug Crawford, who was amazing and remained amazing throughout. Uh, and we had two or three people on site, uh, uh, Scott and Craig. And, and these guys really were, were tasked with the idea of, initially our, our idea was they would kind of keep us going logistically. So they would uh, make sure that things were in the right place, that we were fed at the right time, that we, we didn't have to stop and kind of think about where, where the frying pan was to get you know get a bacon sandwich on the go. Somebody else could do that kind of stuff for us. So we had a kind of a practical view of, of how these guys would fit into our, um, to our executing the, the project. Uh, but I think very, very quickly uh, that that, um, that became something more emotional uh, and more um, psychologically supportive, um, which I do think we'd recognise would be the case, but not perhaps to the to the uh, extreme that it became. Uh, it's it's worth noting as well that these these guys were the guys that on site were tasked uh, to do a very specific job, um, but we were also uh, supported by. Um, 
uh, Gaz uh, Bamford uh, of Jury is Mind, um, who, who mentored us through the project. We were supported by our brands who, who had experience with certain things, by, by uh, Osprey themselves. You know, and uh, So we had a lot of um, input from experts. And we had uh, experts on site who came and, and visited. But we were also very lucky to be, um, I, I guess, gifted with the opportunity to have uh, the mountain rescue team, Loch Aber mountain rescue team, who are based up in Fort William. Uh, they, they came on site on the first day and then remained as available as they could be outside the uh, scope of the job they do anyway. Uh, but, uh, you know, lucky for us, they, they were available almost the whole time. So we ended up with a few kind of... Um, quote-unquote medical interventions throughout as well. So the team started off with a small core uh, and grew to be to be quite a large uh, moving beast uh, and also started off we had a practical kind of mindset about it. they'll need to do X, Y and Z but by the end of it uh, they, they were supporting us very much emotionally and supporting our mental health which was actually we, we became kind of part of the, the message that Project Vertical uh, hoped to put out there uh, we were we were learning and receiving the, the kind of uh, the positive aspects of that message as we went along so you mentioned that you you realized partway through that you were you were behind basically what was kind of going through your minds at that point um clearly that must have been in itself its own challenge to kind of decide how to tackle that whether to push through whether to uh, I, I mean i watched the um the full half hour film, which I highly recommend. Um, and you, you, there was a point where I think it was Johnny mentioned how, like, if you just completely destroy yourselves on this, it kind of, it, you know, that's kind of not the message. <laughs> um, could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I think it, it all came really from, I mean, day one. So we set off on the first and as we were sitting in a coffee shop on the Saturday, looking at what was about to, be thrown at us Storm Maiden decided to pop his head out of the water and and chuck 103 mile an hour winds and torrential continuous rain on the Sunday which was our starting plan and I think part of the message was that we we went into this with a very rigid structure in which we wanted to achieve based on the fact that if we could break the back of it on day one by getting four summits out of the way yes we'd be tired yes we'd be battered but it means that once we downgraded to sort of two to three a day following that that seemed like a walk in the park in comparison to day one that was the logic however we obviously didn't know what the weather was going to do until we showed up and it just so happened that day one and day two were the most brutal days when it came to weather so we decided okay looks like plan a is not going to work plan b will be just get what we can done tomorrow see what happens and go from there so we went into the start quite optimistically knowing that we were kind of on the back foot based on what we'd hoped would have happened. Um, but day one, I think we probably, whether it was out of optimism, whether it was just out of not really accounting for the toil that will come with wrestling with that weather, the two that we did on day one probably claimed as much from us as doing four and good weather would have done. So in if, we had, if we had 100% of energy to give to the project across 11 days, and we were, I mean, hypothetically, let's say we were using 10% of that energy on each day, a bit variable either side, obviously. I'd say on day one, we just took way more out of the tank than we'd expected to on paper. And I think we, don't, we didn't really acknowledge the effect of that until we woke up the following day. We came down the stairs, sort of locked eyes with each other on the stairs and thought, right, just knew looking at each other that we were both in a world of pain that we didn't expect to be in. <laughs> 
And we laughed about it, but it also set us back a little bit because on, on paper, we were just looking at it as two. We had a goal based on the number we wanted to do, and we just saw the number two. We didn't then think, well, be kind to yourselves. You were facing a storm with incredibly dangerous winds. Johnny had to take someone down from the mountain and was stage one hypothermic when he got down. We, we, were, we were just soaked because it was torrential heavy rain the whole way through, and there's no kit on the planet unless we were in a submarine maybe that would have prevented us from getting soaked in that situation. So we got through as much as we could on day two. We were proud of that. And then we just thought, right, let's let's just do what we can each day. But realised by the time we got to day three, when the weather started to clear up a bit, so much had been taken from us that the thought of actually getting even three done in a day seemed near impossible. And we've done three in training and it didn't, it didn't sort of claim our souls as much as day one did um, and Project Vertical. And we, I mean, we were back squatting heavy on the Monday following the Saturday that we did the three. So it was day three when we kind of took the decision, just do what we can to keep showing up continuously because ultimately that's all that the message is. And we started looking at things too objectively, sat in the uh, mountain rescue van and we were just kind of given a more objective overview from those around us because we were sucked into the subjectivity of our own, our own numbers on paper. But ultimately we needed other people there to give us a different perspective, which I think fits in very nicely with the messaging because it helped bring us back down to where we needed to be. It helped us recalibrate our planning. It helped us start to enjoy the process as well, which I think was the most important takeaway. And what was interesting speaking to people afterwards was we were told in no uncertain terms beforehand, make sure you document on just your phones how miserable you are at points. And we did that, but I think to the outside world, that portrayed the whole thing as nothing but miserable because when we were enjoying th- enjoying ourselves in sort of a beautiful, connective way, we had no inclination to take our phones out and share how much we were enjoying certain moments because we just wanted to be present and enjoy the moment. So once we took the decision that all we were going to do was keep showing up, keep being supported by those around us and just do what we can within the circumstances in front of us, and we've set aside the numbers that we've been rigidly sticking to on our heads. We started to enjoy the process and we actually start to be completely at peace with the fact that the journey for us and for others was going to be more valuable than the original plan had been in the first place. That's awesome. You've kind of covered uh, something I was about to ask you about, which was that it, on challenges, especially challenges that last this long, The, in fact, the word you pulled up earlier was monotony. Um, that that was exactly the word that I was going to use. Um, that monotony must be ever present when it's when it's such a long endurance challenge. Um, you know how with mental health, often it's a spiraling series of thoughts that continue to spiral round and round and round. And then if you take the start point and the end point of your thought process, they're strikingly different because you've started off thinking one thing and you end up thinking the absolute worst possible thing. Um, and I was going to ask whether or not you kind of found that you had to tackle that during the project itself. Um, it definitely sounds like you did. We did. We 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 we, we, we had to. Yeah, monotony was was something we were concerned about. We 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 weren't concerned overall about the idea of having to do eleven days. We, we both felt that that was something we could do. Um, but we were worried at the start and from the start. I mean, we'd had, uh, like Fergus has said, we had, we had the training days where we'd done sort of three times up the mountain. And, and at the time, we had found that kind of monotonous. We thought, oh, God, you know, you know, 11 days doing this is just going to be rough. Um, but actually, what we found 
very quickly was uh, that each day uh, brought a new uh, a new perspective. Each day brought a new view. It was as, it was as simple and as trite almost as saying that every time we climbed that mountain, we got a different view up there. Um, and I think that what we learned to do, uh, as Fergus was saying, is, is we learned to find someone in as much as we could. Um, and we did have a laugh. We did have a very a, a lot of laughs up there. We had a lot of uh, uh, you know down moments and moments where we were in pain and moments where we just kind of wished the whole thing away. But I think for the most part, I'm sure Fergus will agree with me. For the most part, we actually felt relatively positive. Uh, what what was negative was monotonous. It was the, the, the negative uh, feeling of, of being physically broken uh, was wearing. You know? But I don't think the idea of uh, you know, the mountain itself, it wasn't, oh God, Ben Nevis again. It was, oh God, the pain again, you know? So I think the monotony was there, but in a, in a very different way. Uh, and we managed it well. There was a kind of a, a cheerfulness that we brought to it for the most part. Yeah. I would be lying to say that we were positive and cheerful the whole time. Uh, that wouldn't be natural anyway, but uh, there was times which was, where it was very dark for both of us, uh, individually and together. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of times where we managed to kind of sail through that just by being particularly base and childish, which is kind of a go-to for for most fellas, I think. <laughs> I think I think the key though that we were doing it together, and if we'd been left to battle with our own thoughts, it would have been a lot worse. I mean, the, the best example that I've used, and it's a funny one because it actually shows our own stubbornness as males, was on day one when we were fighting with the the sort of peak winds, and every footstep we took in front of us was a lot more strain on our legs to keep it in position because we were genuinely fighting with the wind to sort of stay aligned with our gait. And we were, I was coming up the the second descent, I think it was about 3.30, maybe it was mid-afternoon, I know that. And um, I just felt cramp in my quad. And I thought, no way. How on earth am I cramping on day one, having done a full taper, suffered through much longer than this in training? Again, stuck in my own head, you've not, not, not acknowledging the fact I've been fighting through the rain and the wind. And I turned to him, I said, oh, my quad's a bit, I'm feeling it my quad, quad a bit, you know. And he went, oh, yeah, mine's cramping. I was like, oh, thank goodness. Mine is too. <laughs> Just not, not one, I didn't want to admit I was I was suffering on day one as early as I was, but it was then, then very reassuring to know that we were both in the exact same position. Yeah. And then that, again, helped me understand, actually, if we're both feeling this way, that's for reasons out with our control, not because we've underprepared or anything like that. So yeah, I, I, that was a big turning point in terms of, from that point onwards, it was complete, 100% honesty at every step of the way. And it'd just be a case of, we could be mid-conversation and just turn to each other and I'm pretty, pretty miserable now. And an interesting thing we had from Doug, the base camp manager, who's he's just, just finished his master's in psychology, sports psychology. He just gave us an, an ABC sort of scale to work with in that if we ever wanted to sort of express how we were feeling outwardly, the best thing we could do would just be to say an A, a B, or a C. A B would sort of be where we were cruising. A C would be where we feel really in, in a hole. And for Johnny and I, we both know how to act and how to interact with one another when we are in that situation. And then an A probably doesn't need to be said, but we did occasionally just check in with it to say, where are you? And it'd be, oh, well, I'm an A kind of tuned towards a B or I'm cruising at a B for the past couple of hours, but I'm fearful I'm going to slip into a C. And it just really simplified the expression that we needed to therefore mould our interaction, mould what we were saying, mould what we were doing, mould how quickly we were moving, little things like that around the other person to make sure that we were as supportive for one another as we could be whilst being considerate of the other person's um, 
state of mind at that time because it allowed us to better look after one another when we were in the in the sort of darker periods of time. What I really like about that as well <clears throat> is it's another perfect metaphor <laughs> because the the way you described basically feeling the way that you felt, then choosing to pluck up the courage and share it and find out that they're feeling exactly the same way. Not only is is that textbook mental health conversation, it's it, it goes further because you, you basically described the floodgates being opened and that like past that point, you felt completely open about sharing at any point how you were feeling. And again, it's, you know, that's exactly the way it works uh, with mental health conversation. Yeah, that, that, that was exactly my experience with it when I was um, coming out of the back end of my own suffering with depression. I mean, it was another six months before I actually opened up to anyone following a suicide attempt. I mean, having suffered from silence for two years as a result of being stubbornly masculine, another six months following reaching that sort of darkest, lowest point is just testament to how resilient to an open conversation it was back then. But it was actually my dog um, just saying things out loud to him that I hadn't really considered before, just on walks, just kind of like, oh, not feeling all that good today, pig, or something like that. He, I call him the pig dog because he's a French bulldog and snores a lot for clarity on that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, just walking with him, I just say things out loud and all of a sudden I kind of check myself and be like, oh, that's new. Because I'd been so good at disguising my own thoughts inside my own head that when I was actually outwardly expressing them, it was much easier for me to start to process them and then move towards ultimately now the position I'm in where I'm completely open and honest about how I'm feeling at all times and feel that I'm completely sort of absolved from falling into the trap of the stigma that caught me the first time around. But I've only got there through having those small incremental conversations over time that have ultimately led me to the position where if I met someone for the first time on the street or anywhere, in fact, I'd be completely comfortable expressing the fact that I've suffered from depression, I attempted suicide, and I'm now very open and, and honest about discussing that because my experience might resonate with someone else and that might therefore have a positive influence on their, on their life because I know how much of a liberating and positive experience it's been for me. And that just that has just come down into conversation, plain and simple. So it was um, reassuring for me to, well, reassuring in one sense, but also surprising that I, I fell into that trap briefly on day one where I thought, you know what, I'm going to withhold a bit of information here. But I think that came from more of an athletic point of view in that I don't want to admit I'm suffering physically when I know I've done the work mm -hmm. rather than actually I'm, I'm ashamed of admitting it or anything like that. I think they're quite different things, but... Again, it's, it's another metaphor for I was suffering on day one due to things that I could not control. And then all I needed to do was shift my perspective from understanding that to working within the constraints that were in front of me. And then once once I acknowledged that, it was much easier to, to move forwards to consider how I was feeling and to actually tackle the situation in front of me rather than the situation that I expected to be in front of me. Awesome. I, I've I, That particularly resonates with me as well because... I've talked on the podcast before about my own experiences with anxiety. Uh, had a really good chat with Foxy about it. He diagnosed me with uh, PSD, which was very fun. Um, <laughs> uh, PTSD, sorry. Um, PSD is a Photoshop file. <laughs> you can tell I'm a creative. Um, <laughs> uh, it, th those kind of floodgates being opened, like I'm in the same place now where I can very easily talk about 
my past experiences. And it's honestly, it's liberating. Like it, it, it's such a relaxed conversation now every time I have it. And what it also has now allowed me to do is that I've, I've had occasions where I've been able to recognize a panic attack, for example, in other people and kind of help talk them down from it. Um, so I, I almost look at it a bit like, I mean, it's, you know, that you can, this is a very, uh, childish boyish approach perhaps, but, um, I, I look at it a little bit like a superpower now where like, if I can, if I can recognize those signs in someone else, I can help them to break out from it. And then that's, you know, that's it. Like as soon as you start breaking out from it, it's, I mean, I, I'm hesitant to call it a gift, but do you know what I mean? I, mean, I think it's a, it's a learn, it's a learned skill, learned behavior. It's mm. the, the, the beautiful thing about what you kind of summarize there is that the impact of you spotting that in someone else might be the first step that they need to ultimately spot it in someone else from themselves further down the line. So the more that we can do to not just almost liberate ourselves from it, but help liberate others, it's kind of a, it's learning to give and take on it a little bit in that now that I've been supported through my own experience, I'm much better suited to supporting others through theirs or at least like to think so or have learned to be able to do so, I guess. Um, and that only comes from those inc incremental steps over time. So it's difficult to spot in different people, but ultimately the better you know someone and the more open and honest you are continuously, whether you're suffering with your own mental health or not, the more reliable you can come across as someone that can be relied upon in a time of crisis. And I think that that's probably where we're falling short as a society at the moment from my perspective is that it seems like something that's not tackled until it's a problem. Whereas mm -hmm. the more that we can all have open and honest conversations about it and make it something that's not uncomfortable, the more confident those that are suffering will be in approaching anyone and everyone around them further down the line when they feel that they need some sort of support. And um, I think that was the biggest step change that I can take away from my own experience to now is that my group of friends, those around me are much, much more comfortable and confident just talking about it openly, whether it's a deep, emotional, meaningful conversation or not. It's kind of just another part of day-to-day -day life now. Whereas back when I was suffering, I couldn't I couldn't think of anyone directly who I'd ever had a conversation with on mental health beyond it being conceptual, which meant that I, I felt really freakish, unique, and exposed for feeling the way that I did. So that was ultimately what held me back from from taking that first step and having that conversation. Um, so it's just it's just we've made a lot of progress as a society. But I think a huge a huge step forward we can all take is actually acknowledging that suffering or not, the more open and honest conversations we can have as a society as a community, the better. I'd say that there's something in it as well, Marcus. You said a minute ago about it being a gift. Or, or you, you were hesitant about that. But you, you can see some, uh, uh, I think there is some beauty in it, uh, uh, and it is a gift to a certain degree, whether you want to think of it as a gift that you can give somebody else, is, is if you've had that opportunity, as Fergus and I have had, and it sounds like you've had uh, directly on this podcast, in fact, but if you've had that <laughs> opportunity to uh, to explore your own feelings and explore that, uh, that being exposed to those feelings and then have people around you normalize that as Fergus has just alluded to, then then you then 
are able to speak to others. You have been gifted that opportunity then to speak to others and to say to them, look, it's okay to feel this way. It's, it's actually quite normal to feel this way. And, and uh, being open and honest about it will, will help you through it. And um, reaching out will be an important part of that um, healing process. So in a certain sense, I think it is a gift because with the anxiety or, or you know the PTSD that you're describing and Fergus's depression and my own mental health problems, um, you're able to come out of it, or hopefully able to come out with with these open and honest conversations, and then able to reach out to others and say, listen, you know, honesty and, and introspection and, and the you know being being available to yourself to to allow that to happen is something you can give others. So I wouldn't be hesitant in, in saying that it's a gift. It's been, certainly you can look at it negatively or you can look at it positively. And I think uh, if you can look at it positively and, and use it for the power of good, then well, that sounds like a super power to me, mate. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Uncle Johnny. <laughs> uh, bring it back to the challenge then. What would you say was the biggest, if you had to pick one thing, what would you say was the biggest obstacle that you faced? Probably the hill. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, it was uh, a good question. I think I think the unpredictability, to summarise, I've used that as an answer because it gives me a, a get out of jail free card to really broaden on that answer so that I don't actually need to give you a single thing as an answer. Very funny. <laughs> but no, I think, I think, to be honest, the unpredictability as a summary kind of ties in a lot of the things we've already said in the sense that we had a view of how things were going to unfold based on our experience and based on what we thought was achievable on paper within a certain amount of time. However, there's only a few things, there's only a, there's only a certain amount of things that we can learn, predict, without actually just diving the deep end and figuring out how to swim in it. And we knew that we were going to have to start icing our knees, we were going to start suffering with joints, we were going to start feeling that here our gait was going to change and that was going to affect this, that and everything. We knew there was going to be bad weather. We knew we were going to have to deal with sleep deprivation. We knew we have to deal with X, Y and Z. And we did what we could within what we expected on paper to prepare for that. And ultimately, we very quickly learned that we weren't getting enough sleep based on the fact that our bodies just weren't, weren't recovering fast enough to be able to go the following day. The unpredictable, it was more unfortunate, but the, the weather being as bad as it was on day one and day two was not something we could have predicted, no, but it, it wasn't unlikely. Um, so I think the, the lesson, the, the I'm not going to say it's an obstacle as much as it was just a part of the process in the sense that we, we went in as prepared as we could be in the time that we had. And then the experience, the experience wasn't any different from what we expected. The output was. And I think if we were to change anything, we probably would have started icing our knees from the get-go, icing our ankles from the get-go, focusing more on recovery and actually stretching things out a little bit more because we knew these things were going to be a problem, but we didn't necessarily factor in the time lost whilst rectifying these things. So in the time that we'd worked around, we thought, okay, we'll, we'll get medically, medically treated or ice within the hour period that we've got between summits. But in reality, what happened was we needed that hour just to, to eat, get changed, sort of chat, feel a bit more human again. And then it'd be another hour on top of that, let's say, where we were both getting iced, both getting strapped, all that sort of thing. So we 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 predicted as much as we could. We realized quite quickly that that, only get, got, that would only get us so far. And then the big turning point, and I think where we actually turned an obstacle into an opportunity 
was when we let go of what we felt we could predict and just became at one with the experience where we sort of conceded to let's do what we can every day within the circumstances and within our capabilities and give everything we've got because we can't get frustrated over things that are, are beyond our grasp. But what we can do is we can show up and give everything we've got within the, the parameters that we're working with. And that, that decision, in my mind, turned the most sort of looming, uncertain obstacle, which was how are we going to get to the finish within these circumstances into an opportunity to enjoy the process, to rework the process and to actually extract a lot more as individuals and as a sort of project as a whole from the experience. My, sh- my short answer to what's the worst part is the downhills. That's it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, of course, because the downhills don't count. Right. We get two single answers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, right. it's kind of more holistic answer is correct there you know there's a lot of kind of um from from the negatives we eventually drew positives and things but i think probably speaking really directly uh about what what was the most difficult physical part it was those downhills you know we, we had uh, we'd experienced it before to a certain degree but you know nobody's probably experienced that at all uh, to the you know the nth degree that we were pushing it to and, and mm. we we very quickly we knew this to be, would be the case. Um, as Fergus is saying, we probably weren't uh, quite as prepared as we should have been as to kind of get ahead of it a little bit with the recovery uh, protocols that we knew we should have been adhering to. We weren't lazy with it. We just thought, well, we'll not need to do that till days four, whatever. And by that point, we had we kind of lost that uh, logistical control of the, those timelines. But ultimately, yeah, we knew it would be and it was. It was just coming down the hill. Uh, and that added nothing. Fergus has mentioned that on a, on a few different conversations. Uh, and at the time, we thought about it quite a lot. It, it added nothing to our goal because it was about vertical elevation. So every time we had to come down the mountain, we were just coming down in order to start the process again. We, we, we got nothing in our goal out of it. <laughs> so yeah, it was very frustrating. But you know, you, you're looking at kind of constant eccentric force trying to stop yourself breaking coming down that hill. And the more your muscles get tired the more that that becomes difficult and you saw in the video both of us were suffering in in different ways and in very similar ways from that and yeah that, that eventually took its toll that, that uh, you know it eventually would have stopped us dead and in, in, in that and it, it fundamentally did do but uh, yeah there's lots to draw from it we, we tried to put a positive spin on everything that was negative everything that was difficult but we we still haven't found a way to put a positive spin on coming down that bloody hill <laughs> <laughs> I think um, the interesting thing as well, as you said, is there's not really anyone we could have turned to to sort of give us a bit more a bit more advice on that in the sense that it is the monotony and the nature of the project itself that meant that that was a problem because if you're doing a Wainwright round or something like that, then it's not quite as much variation in the vertical exchange. In the descent, there's varying terrain, there's time on grass, which takes a bit of pressure off, there's less sort of bouldery steps, all this sort of thing. And Nevis is a harsh, harsh environment and we're under no illusions that if we'd done it on Snowden, if we'd done it on a mountain with a bit more grassy relief or sort of less impactful landings over and over again, we might have been able to get a bit further in the time that we did. But we chose Ben Nevis because it's it's where we're both, well, Scotland's where we're both from. It's the most iconic mountain in the UK. And we wanted to add challenge to the challenge, really. But the downhills became brutal, like not just physically brutal, but I think I probably suffered with it more in the end. You did, Johnny. You almost got it out of the way early. Um, but my my biggest challenge in the end was the downhills in the sense that 
I didn't realize how bad my gait had become protecting. I can't even isolate what it was, but I sprained my ankle on day seven, I think it was, um, which I knew was coming. It had been a bit weak. Yeah. Um, sprained pretty badly, like a good 10, 15 minutes, almost throwing up on the floor in pain. Nothing snapped. Oof. It was it was bad. It was bad. Um, but the funniest thing is immediately we just turned to humor to get through it. Um, so the final hour coming down, I was laughing more than I had been previously, just as I was masking the pain. But from that moment onwards, I was correcting and protecting my ankle by adjusting my movement with my hip. And I started to kind of pivot, which then slowly started to build up some crepitus, ultimately in my knee, which is just internal swelling in the joint. And for the final three days, every time we got to the top, we, we could feel golden up to the top. We, we actually got faster and faster and more and more efficient on the way up. Wow. The second we turned down, I was just overwhelmed with this fear because I felt like I was almost having a knife held up to me because I was just tense, tight, full of adrenaline and fear. And every step was kind of a lottery on whether it was going to be agony or whether I was going to be able to move properly. And Oof. it just got worse and worse. And I think the mental frustration and exhaustion of just being that worried about it for about three to three and a half hours, knowing I was going down to do it again, was really quite... It was, it's hard to describe. It was, it was just... Um, it, it was it was almost self-inflicted torture in the end. It was it was a very it was a very self-destructive mindset to be in. I, we we did everything we could to get me out of it, and I think we had moments where it was better than better than other times. But ultimately, it was the nature of the downhill, and that there was just no relief I could find from it. I tried focusing on my gait, but if I was flexing my knee properly, it'd be more painful than if I was pivoting my hip. If I was pivoting my hip, I'd start to hurt my right hip, and that would put more pressure on my ankle. And it was just this constant ba- balancing act of fear versus forwards movement. And I, yeah, in the back of my mind, I was just so frustrated that the most challenging part of the project didn't actually contribute to the goal of the project, but we created the thing. So can't blame anyone but ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> um, could you tell us a bit about Nick Gardner? We can indeed. Yes. What a man. So he was brilliant. Yeah. So Nick, for those that don't know on Instagram, it's Nick's underscore Monroe underscore challenge. And he is 80 years old. His wife, Janet, is suffering with osteoporosis and Alzheimer's in full-time care. And you, you can just, I mean, his story is available online, but he's, he's basically just, to summarize, he's just absolutely gutted that he has to live with the situation and he, he's in, in and out of care with her and he's, he's from up north where well, he lives up north. And he, I think he summarized in his words, he summarized it as I thought I needed to take on something that I might not be successful in, but that I would enjoy to distract me from what I was going through, which in simple terms was Nick is committed at 80 years old to a full Monroe round. And he said 1200 days, but I think he's closing in on 60 within about three months. Yeah, he's moving at pace, but um, I just find that for me personally, I think uh, Johnny, your question as well is the fact that at eighty, he's publicly and openly committed to something that terrifies him as a not a remedy, but as a as a strategy to help him cope with a negative situation that he can't in reality do much about at all, other than improve his position within it. I mean, for me, I'm not married yet, but I've got a girlfriend that I love very much. And the thought of me being in this situation was terrifying to me. And he was standing there saying to us that the most important for the thing for him is to just, his exact words were to just be in the mountains. That was it. That was kind of a summary of what, what is good for you, Nick. And those were his words. Um, 
and he was just so honest, so humble about it. And he was stopping people at the top of Ben Nevis asking for a group, handing over a business card with a link to a link to the charity page and everything. Just beautiful to see. And we spoke about it at length, but we don't draw a huge amount of inspiration from other individuals purely because I think the way we both work, we try and kind of draw inspiration internally because we both know how important it is to not get sucked into comparison, not get sucked into focusing on things that aren't actually internally fulfilling for us. Mm. Just something about Nick. And I think it was just simply the fact that at 80 years old, he's openly said, I'm going to do it. And he's taken that first step, which will have been a terrifying thing. But now he's in a much better place than he was. He's inspiring other people. He had me in tears for about five minutes at the top of the end when we were there with him. I, I can't explain why. It was just an emotional. It, it was a really beautiful moment in the film. It was. It was. It was. Um, yeah. Yeah. And um, he's, he's still going. He's got people joining him. He's got support increasing. Um, but he was just a lovely, honest, just lovely, lovely man who who made a real contribution to our ability to keep putting one foot in front of the other. I think it's fair to say, isn't it, Johnny? It really is, mate. Uh, the, yeah, he, he embodied for us um, the, the message, the metaphor, every single way that you can cut that. There, there was a living sort of breathing, uh, uh, yeah, embodiment of all that. Uh, uh, yeah, I probably can't sum- summarise it any better than Ferguson, but it's just very inspiring to see a guy there in, in amongst his own um, sadness and almost grief. Uh, he described to us privately, you know, off camera and things that, you know, to a degree, he's, you know, Janet's lost to him in a certain sense, you know. So I, I've been through... Um, the idea or had to cope with the idea of, of nearly losing uh, my wife uh, a couple of years back. Um, and that was tough, real tough. And to see him, he, ultimately he's marching forward quite literally. He's decided I'm going to keep moving and he's, he's positioned it for himself that, that that movement and that kind of joy of the mountains can bring some good for others. And it, I don't think there could have been any other way to kind of embody what it was that we were trying to say or the experiences that we've had than to meet this kind of real life superhero up that hill, smiling and joking and just marching forward. And there's some pace on him too. He was he was a a machine of a man, you know. He's, he, you would you would expect to bump into an eighty year old moving up that mountain and think, well, we'll have to go slow for him, but it didn't knock our pace down any. So so he was inspired in in, in many ways. We, we've been joking about it, or I, I've joked about it since. In fact, that that little scene at the top, all three of us standing there, is uh, is. is uh, one where, where Fergus is crying and, and uh, looks around and, and that, that pr- prompts Nick to cry. He, he feels the emotion in, in uh, Fergus crying. And I was stood between the two of them, actually with no tears. <laughs> <laughs> moment just thinking, oh dear, oh no, I'm going to look particularly heartless. <laughs> <laughs> I've uh, told you beforehand, haven't I? I said, I, I know I'm going to cry at the top. I couldn't really explain yeah. why. Yeah. Um, there, was, there was like, I, I just felt emotional, but I couldn't tell Johnny or Brody, who was filming us at the time, any reason why. I just I just knew I was going to, which was an interesting thing because it was kind of a learning experience for me. But We'd had an emotional think- uh, run up to that uh, as well. We, we'd had moments, I think because we knew that we were going to uh, summit with Nick that day, which was something that was important to both of us. It was a beautiful day as well. It was, it was a stunning day. It was probably one of the best days. I think it was two days that we can single out on, on the mountain, which were uh, glorious uh, and beyond description and none of the cameras uh, as, as wonderful as some of the uh, photography and, and, and video footage that we've got 
actually captured how beautiful those days were. And one of them was with Nick. So it kind of made it even more poignant that we were able to see the world from the, from the top of that mountain with Nick. And we'd had a couple of private moments, Fergus and I, on the way up that particular summit where, where we'd uh, uh, taken a moment to tell each other that we, we loved each other. And this this was an important sum, summit for us personally, you know. And Fergus, I've said, I feel very emotional. So I think uh, getting to the top there and having that moment uh, was a, you know, a victorious thing. You know, it was a, mm. it was a very beautiful moment. And, and one, whether it was captured on camera or not, that we'll, we'll both remember forever. And as a bloke, I'm not ashamed to admit that I was much better off for just crying my eyes out for a few minutes. Yeah, I think it, does it kind of just helps. As is often the way. Brilliant, yeah. I'd said it earlier on in, in, in the film, I'd had it, uh, not for the same reasons, it was very sort of deep, more um, introspective or more ruminatory reasons, but I think I said on in the film that uh, I'd been out, this was day three, when I think it was, when Scott had been with us, Fergus, and we'd, I'd gone out in front in the morning. I'd been in a lot of pain the day before. And I'd gone out in front and spent 10 minutes just sort of 50 yards ahead of everybody. Uh, and, I, and I must have cried for about five, 10 minutes. It wasn't, I didn't take myself away so that people wouldn't see my tears. It was just, you know, it felt appropriate to me to just take that time. But it's cathartic. It's really cathartic. It really helps. It's really, really useful. I was able to then slip back into the into the group uh, and uh, and have a great day that day. Actually, and I say the same for Fergus. You, you have those moments where you can let out those tears, and sometimes even if it's unexpected, it, it can be you know quite beautiful and quite cathartic. And I think after that, there's a there's a warming in your heart that's uh, it's very useful to cry. So, yeah, yeah, it was it was a, a great day. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about day jobs and balancing things like training for an absurd challenge like this <laughs> with a relatively normal life. <laughs> what was your approach? What was the training looking like? How were you making it work? Yeah, so the the we kind of came from similar positions. Well, we, we kind of both had a little bit of specialization for a, a couple of months. I kind of went off plan a little bit with something, but it was worthwhile in the end. Um, but the, the premise was basically retain as much lower body strength and robustness, I guess, not a word, but could be, um, as we can, because we both got a, a history of sort of strength sports as well. So hold as much of that as we can, because that will help keep us resilient, keep our joints healthy, and actually just give us a bit of bit more tolerance of the, of the repetitive gait over time. A lot of weighted lunging, as it's the closest thing that mimics an actual stride uphill. Um, and then just increasing our aerobic base as much as we can whilst increasing specificity to that in the hills itself. So obviously the difficult thing is that you can't just spend all day charging about the hills. Um, so that was probably challenge number one. So the formula we basically found ourselves in was Monday mornings was low body strength. Tuesday mornings was in the Pentlands local to us in Edinburgh. Um, we were doing sort of an hour to an hour and a half, which started off in a weighted vest for the first eight weeks and then we dropped that closer to the time wednesday was upper body and uh important thing to mention we're on the step machine after every weight session as well so wednesday was upper body thursday was the pentlands again friday was sort of a full body conditioning session and then saturday was a well full body conditioning with a one weighted lunge focus as a way of pre-fatiguing us for a big day in the hills on saturday but as we're we're both sort of two two and a half hours away from the hills the Saturdays were exhausting and we did try to make it as relevant to Ben Nevis as we could, which meant 4am start to be fair every Tuesday and Thursday, 
every Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday was 4am starts for training for us both. Um, and then the Saturdays, we, we pretty much block out the whole day to get our, get our time in. Because it was just building up as much volume as we possibly could whilst retaining the strength that we had elsewhere. We did as much as we could whilst holding down jobs. Johnny has four kids. I don't. It would have been a lot harder with that. But the funniest thing is, we look back now and I've kind of we're kind of in limbo because we're both a bit injured, not really training for anything directly. We're in December. I honestly have no idea how I had the um, desire or ability to get out of bed every morning to do it. But it just it just shows that purpose, passion, progress sort of approach to it was how we got through it. Set a plan, worked it around what we knew we would be able to do within the time that we had. There were some mornings where we didn't get enough sleep. I, I, I 100% was not getting enough sleep for the period period of time. I mean, I was running on four to six hours a night, and it was very difficult to do anything other than train and focus on my day job. Um, weekends were just recovery eating, lying around, nothing exciting. Um, but we, we did as much as we could that was relevant as we could. And whilst we we fell short of the ultimate goal, I think we set ourselves up to get as far and as close to it as we could. I don't think we could have trained any better, frankly. Um, no. Yeah, uh, logistics worked against us to a certain degree, as Fergus says, because we're two and a half uh, hours away from mountains. Uh, we, we had the... Uh, the, the luck of the you know the Pentlands is, is a, a range of hills close to both of us, um, and, and we could mimic some of what we needed to do on Nevis. But actually, there's a very different. So even then, we were at a little bit of a loss. So we had the, the step machine in the gym actually, because Nevis is, is, there's a lot of steps as opposed to it being kind of open, marshy, or, or, or a, like like a trail if you like. So we we were as specific as we could be, and, and we used as much time as we could. But as you said we, we had we have jobs we have partners i've got children um i think uh, what happened there is we are very lucky indeed to be supported so well at home uh, and you know and th- those those people around us saying yeah okay we can give you up for a weekend to pursue this thing but the other thing that comes into it is, is we've got jobs we've got children we've got commitments etc but also putting the project together became a kind of a full-time job as well because there's the all, all the logistics around that you know the making sure that uh, we had as much support in terms of the, the brands that came on board with us who were all fantastic but you know we had to manage those relationships and make sure that obviously putting the film together was something that was important for us to get that message out but, you know behind the scenes doing that's quite tough so and that, yeah that's no small feat in itself exactly yeah. so by the way, um, well. we, were, we were working kind of what we felt like was two full-time jobs and the trading and and uh, as Fergus says at this point we, we kind of look back on it and go well how did we even muster the energy to get out of bed at the moment I'm struggling to just get up and down the stairs interesting thing though is I um I'm kind of just training I'm going to I'm not training as, as it were I'm going to the gym and training what I can just as a way of going to the gym and exerting some energy because I'm kind sense. of restricted in the way that I'm actually approaching things. But it's just serving as a real purpose to, to give me, to make me a bloke that does things outside of my day job again, which is very important to me because, I mean, the challenge is I, I don't work on my own timelines. I've got to work around the timelines that are given to me by, by the day job. So the way my circumstances are at the moment is I can only train in the evenings because um, I've got to get Erin, my girlfriend, to, to work in the mornings. Um but it does just mean that it, it, it seems like a total chore to me at the moment. It seems like something that 
would be easy to drop from my day-to-day life, but I know how valuable it is to me personally. And whilst there's not really a purpose as much until January for me or until I'm fully recovered, I do know how much better I feel just exerting some energy and having some time to myself on that. Whereas we were so driven by the mission and the and the effort that had gone into pulling off Project Vertical, the, the 4 a.m. starts, the sacrifices and the, the sort of late nights, early mornings, no time just to sort of switch off and do do normal things. Um, it We enjoyed it. I think it's fair to say when we were rocking up at the Pentlands car park at five in the morning on a Tuesday, first people there, actually furious if there was anyone else there before us. Um, <laughs> we, we just kind of settle into acknowledging that we're lucky to be able to, to get up and see a sunrise at this time of the year and be the first people up there to do so. So whilst we were tired, yes, that was kind of training in itself. Whilst it was the, the, the harder thing to do, yes, the whole process has made us better people and has helped equip us with a bit of a toolbox of knowing, knowing what's best for us as individuals to sort of live a better life from this point onwards. But we've only got there by fighting through the uh, the trial and error that is the process of pulling something like this off because it wasn't like we just put this out there and said, all right, okay, off you go. Let's see how people can interact with this. It was a lot of conversations, a lot of back and forth, lots of doors that were opened and then closed, lots of setbacks that we needed to, de- to, needed to deal with, all whilst day job, life, getting on with training. But most importantly, having the desire to keep training even when suddenly things seem like they're a bit on the back foot but yeah, I'd encourage other people to, to push their own boundaries and the sort of thing, but most importantly to to do it with something that they find a purpose or a full sense of fulfillment in because if we weren't driven by this, if we weren't driven by the cause, would we have got up at four in the morning to go and train? No, no way. And it's the more that we invested into it, the easier it became. And I think that wasn't that wasn't just accountability. I think it was more faith in faith in the um in the effort that had got us to position that we were in and uh i'm not all that excited at this stage about when we have to do all that again but for the time being i'm enjoying a bit of time just kind of going through the motions with the training still eating to recover i'm definitely past that point but i'm enjoying it i'm kind of in <laughs> i'm kind of in oh, it's christmas mode already have been since i got back <laughs> december uh, sorry, i saw november sorry but um and, yeah it, 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 and the five hundred kilo yeah. woman that's uh, recovering still. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's excusable, mate. <laughs> what What would you recommend to someone who um, wants to be really functionally strong, like functionally fit, capable of just doing a mountain tomorrow if they wanted to? What sort of activities would you be recommending to them? Would you be saying like running for cardio? bit of lifting for strength like what what would what would be your recipe for success depends for, a, on, for a really all-round athlete yeah it depends on the on the individual so fergus and i uh we practice what's what's become termed as uh hybrid uh coaching uh, and, and certainly a, a kind of a hybrid approach to things and all that means is that we we believe that fundamentally that to, it, what, what normally happens is, is people will attend to an endurance event or, or like you say, just wanting to go up and down in the hills and think, well, that's endurance work. So what I need to do is run X amount of miles a week. And, and that's what I'm going to do because that's the outcome. And they, they don't attend to any strength work at all. Uh, at the flip side of that, you'll have people who who attend to strength work, maybe maybe somebody who's involved in powerlifting or, or just strength sports, and that's their, that's their gig. 
uh, and so they, they attend to no cardio whatsoever. And these things are normally very disparate and far apart. Uh, we're of the opinion, and we, we certainly coach and program this way to our own athletes, that uh, the, the, the whole lot is, is built on a spectrum. And uh, in order to be strong in the hills, in order to be endurant, you also need to have a strength base, or it's, it's absolutely uh, massively useful to have that strength base. Certainly from an endurance perspective, um, uh, sorry, from a strength perspective, it's it's very, very useful to have a, a larger uh, aerobic base than people initially believe. So what we do is we, we very much uh, promote the idea that in order to do this kind of stuff that we've been doing, for instance, where we're just going up and down a mountain over and over, uh, we, we put a lot of emphasis into strength work so that we could be physically robust enough to deal with the um, the, the rigors of that. And, uh, and in our minds, it works very well. And we, we have a great deal of athletes that, that we've worked with that kind of prove that for us. So to go back to your question directly, if you've got, it depends on the outcome, I suppose, but uh, Fergus kind of covered it quite well with their own training is there needs to be specific focus on what it is that that individual wants to do. So if it is climbing mountains, then they're not going to get good at climbing mountains unless they go out and climb some mountains. As, as ridiculous as it seems to say something quite so obvious as that, you know, people do tend to think, well, I'll get fit and then I'll do it, you know, and that's kind of a backwards approach to things really. But, you know, take it step by it's step. Like you've, got to, you've got to train the skill as well, right? It's not just... You know, skills, skills fundamental to anything and, and skills, the thing that should come first in anything that you're doing, you need to, you need to get the technical ability and the skill and, and people, again, going, looking at mountains specifically, they, they don't, or even running, uh, don't look at, you know, the, the skill components there. People kind of naturally assume or believe that, well, running is natural, going up and down mountains is natural. I don't need to develop that skill. Uh, but it's, there's, a, there's a lot of emphasis we would place on that in that you, you do. If you want to be good at it, if you, you know, if you're just going out to climb a hill and enjoy the view, then fine. You don't probably need to be super skilled at it. But if you want to enjoy it more or do a, you know, a, a round of... Take an, an athlete's you know, approach. Then that's right. Yeah, you, you need to have specific input there. But we would, we would very much rely on uh, strength work as being a fundamental part of that process as well. So... So that, that's how we'd approach it, and that's how we'd, we'd suggest others do, is to look at every kind of component in there and make sure that that's in a programme and make sure that's applied across the programming so that everything's being covered. Uh, how to do that it isn't easy to encapsulate. Uh, uh, certainly people can come and ask us. We're happy to help, but uh, it's very doable. you just got to make sure that you don't put, pour too much in uh, or it all spills out over the sides. Yeah. So. The, the word function is an interesting one as well because I think the word functional has become almost – applies with the broad brush strokes a lot it's of things. a bit of a buzzword isn't it yeah whereas if you if you have a goal if you practice a sport if you i mean let's say you're a mountain biker a lot of movements that are termed functional aren't going to be that functional for you if your function is to be good on a mountain bike so i think the goal your functions as an individual is what dictates your exercise selection how you split up volume and basically the the, the sort of science behind it is you're wanting to try to tread the line with what is called your MRV, which is your maximum recoverable volume week by week to try and adapt to the specific demands that you're trying to impose as much as you can. And it's very easy to overspill. And then what you're going to be doing is you're hindering your progress over time. And when you train for multiple disciplines or when you're trying to, as we were trying to maintain strength as well as building up our aerobic base in a slightly more specific arena, then we had to be very careful not to make sure that we were adding too much in any one area of that otherwise we'd overspill the whole equation which meant that every element of the process would be hindered for doing so so 
especially in the gym work that I think it's um it's been coined a lot in your circles Johnny but the, you should be as lazy as you can get away with in the gym to try and put out I mean that can mean completely different things for different sports but for us our we were being as lazy as we could to hit the the, the sort of outputs that we needed so if it was three sets of five and back squats then we wouldn't be rushing our rest time we wouldn't be doing the reps especially quickly we'd be focusing on executing three sets of five quality reps at a at an intensity that's relevant to our goal and that was all calculated behind the scenes to, to get us there so function if, if it's to be hill strong i think the um it, it's a balance of building your aerobic base improving your lower limb strength and specificity through sort of weighted lunges and things as well as actually just spending time in the hills and a lot of the mistakes that are made is bolting different programs together and not accounting for the fact that 100% of one program plus 100% of another program equals 200% output, which isn't going to get you very far. But as Johnny said, there isn't really a way you can encapsulate that answer, but we both like to look at the way that we train and train others is that you, if you can keep a certain baseline, you're only ever in theory about three months away from specializing to, to a different challenge. Um, wow. kind of our goal is that we try and stay, I say injury free, relatively injury free for as long as we can to, um, to only ever be three months away from specializing to a discipline that's different to what we've been training at that time or, or slightly more specialized to what we're doing. Awesome. So, um, you mentioned a few times that you're kind of dealing with some niggles. What are the, are, are these still off the back of, of Project Vertical? Yeah. So I, I was kind of medically discharged for a second summit on day 10 because of crepitus in my knee, on my right knee, um, which is just internal swelling in the joint. That's kind of come and gone. It massively improved and then it kind of flared up again, but went to the physio the other day and I think that's down to tightness in my glutes, hamstrings and calves. It's basically slightly altering the way in which I'm interacting with my knee joint, as it were. So a bit more focus on keeping my calves and hamstrings moving and loose is helping with the knee. Other than that, my right ankle still feels pretty weak and exposed. Um, and my work capacity just feels really quite low. So I'm not, I'm not far off being match, match fit again, shall we say, but there's definitely a lot of things to factor in when I return to a proper coherent training regime rather than just going through the motions. But my knee's the only real, um, issue that I'm still dealing with. And I, I think it's just going to be a case of managing it for a couple more weeks, maybe a month of managing final bits of recovery without overstepping the mark in terms of putting work through it. Whereas Johnny, get a pen and paper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got long enough on, on the podcast to take you through all this, but uh, no, I'm, I'm 44. And so I'm just, I'm just a shattered bag of bones. Is, is the, uh, <laughs> uh, I've got, um, it turns out that, and I think we, this happened sort of early on for me in actual fact, but I've got um, a torn tendon, quite a really quite badly torn tendon in my right knee uh, and a, a, a torn tendon in the left knee and then a ruptured bursa in the left knee. The left knee itself, for me, it's been reconstructed a few times, so it's always going to be a problem, but it actually turns out that the right leg's the most damaged, and I think it's because of the way I was kind of managing that fear of compensating my gait's been just a little bit favoured on the right so I know as I was coming down the hill uh, and probably as I was going up the hill I'm using the right to push off and using the right to decelerate on the way down and things and and that's just taking its toll so I'm a bit uh, a bit scunnered shall we say at the moment but uh, not far off recovery really we're we're actually a month 
give or take, uh, maybe even more now out from having finished the, the, the physical part of the project. So I've had four weeks recovery. Uh, I'm, I'm going through some rehab with, with a physio. Um, and I think maybe three or four weeks out from really starting to kind of try and put some weight through the knees and, and train a little bit again. So I'm, I'm behind Fergus, not surprisingly, because I kind of started the thing behind Fergus. <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, I'm likely to catch up a little bit later. But I think all, all told, we came off the mountain uh, with nothing broken, a few things torn and, and, and pulled and things, but nothing, nothing particularly bad. Uh, nothing that isn't going to be repairable through just time and uh, a, a little bit of, Patience. Okay. Yeah, I, I forgot to mention. I've got um, on the bursa conversation. I've got bursitis in both my heels, and the interesting thing there is that that wasn't an issue that I've really been dealing with until I kind of increased my walking volume back up to about two and a half, five thousand steps a day, which isn't much for sort of anyone's real estimations. But just that increase in use of my Achilles and heel, I've just got bursitis in both tendons, which means that I'm any shoes that go over them at all are it's, it's kind of a rubbing injury that's being aggravated, which means it's just painful. Right. I can't move effectively because as soon as I subconsciously, well, as soon as I consciously stop focusing on it, I just divert to bad gait again. And that's what's causing so it. Is that essentially just a, an inflammation in the ankle? Yeah, it's it's more, what is it exactly, Johnny? What is bursa? It's you bursa uh, a little kind of sacks of fluid, essentially, and, and, and it, it helps with kind of cushioning and movement and things and, and he, yeah. it is inflammation but it's kind of a little it's, it's specific enough for it to be kind of easily aggravated and really quite quite painful yeah um, I mean so I think for, any kind of inflammation is quite painful but your bursa you've got shoulders and joints and things if they if they go you're kind of you're in big trouble um, yeah, it's just a hindrance at the moment it's just I mean this is the thing I'm kind of just when I say I'm training what I can the challenge there is it doesn't feel like I'm really working towards anything other than just keeping my mind sane. And I think um, now that I'm over a month in, mentally I've pretty much recovered from in terms of exhaustion, but it's just frustrating for me as somebody that's used to a high training volume, used to a high training output, used to doing, practicing lots of different disciplines to kind of be on the low tank of fuel as it were. So I'm, I'm excited to get back to it. And it, it, it's, it's starting to weigh on me a little bit mentally where I do feel like I'm just coasting at the moment but it, there's worse times of year to be doing so um mm. it's frustrating it's just it's just little things but i thought they were spurs so good news that they aren't spurs as that would be a much more complicated conversation i think i'd be in a much worse headspace if, headspace if that was the case but inflammation inflammation was my downfall in the end um and i'm still dealing with some of it so it's just it's just managing the minutiae at this stage and um doing what we can to to get back to full fitness I find uh, any kind of inflammation injury is is just weird to deal with because it doesn't really feel like, at least in my experience, I've, I've had uh, pretty bad tendonitis in my knees, um, well, particularly my left knee, having trained parkour for about 10 years, which is incredibly common in that sport, as yeah. you can imagine. Um, and it, it, it it's weird because it doesn't really feel like an injury the vast majority of the time. And then suddenly it'll switch on. I'll be walking up a hill and it'll switch on and I'm like, oh, I'm crippled. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's weird, isn't it? It's, yeah, I think it's because you can't see anything. There's nothing specifically torn. There's nothing kind of pulled away or anything. It's just, it's yeah, that's a mindset thing as well. You, people quite often will tell themselves, mm. oh, well, it's just inflammation. And, uh, you know, if that gets out of hand, inflammation can be extremely painful. So you, you just got, I think you yeah. have to look at that as being, you know, another another injury and, and just kind of 
reconcile yourself to that. The best thing to do, obviously, in your game, if you're still doing the parkour, is make sure that you're uh, doing what we didn't do, which is to ice. And, and a lot of guys, uh, a lot of sports people, I shouldn't just say guys, will tend to try and march through things. The mindset as well, you know, nobody else is doing it or this, you know, whatever. But, mm. you know, certainly as, as you get deeper and deeper into your athletic career, you need to make sure that you're, you're putting in those recovery processes and protocols and icing and looking after those things and to not be afraid again come back to that theme to go and seek help both Fergus and I have gone to see a, a really good physiotherapist and from my perspective I, I know that seeing somebody about uh, the issues uh, really helped my mindset again because I was worried oh god what have I done to my knees am I have I really gone too mm-hmm. far this time you know and I've, I've gone too far a few times in the past so I didn't, I didn't want to be in that place again and uh Benji, our physio, was able to say, no, you've just, these are the problems. This is the rehab time. This is what you're looking at. And so I could walk out of there still almost as sore as I walked in, but knowing there's a game plan there. So, yeah, just get ahead of it. Get ahead of it with the tendonitis, mate. It's, uh, it can be a frustrating thing, but uh, you've got to manage it. Will do. Um, let's wrap things up. We've been chatting a very long time. Uh, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, we're looking for three recommends from you. You could either join forces or, or do three each I don't mind um, we're looking for one film or TV show uh, one music that could be a song or it could be an artist um, and one other which could be literally anything you would like to recommend I think film wise there's, um, there's this really cool film kicking about at the moment called Project Vertical um, oh nice yeah I have heard of it <laughs> um, all jokes aside that can be found on my YouTube channel and just documents the the sort of journey of the project in its entirety um, to give an overview of, of how the whole thing looked for anyone interested. Um, and it than, is really good. Who, yeah. who, who filmed yeah. that? Rolling Rogues. So there was a... Brody Hood was the man behind the camera as part of Rolling Rogues. Um, Shout out uh, Brody. He did a yeah. stellar oh, job. Well, yeah, he, he went up the demand for certain shots and things, which has come out really well. And then an actual film. I can't think of the last film I actually watched. <laughs> yeah, that, you've gone back to your question about training and all the rest of it. The, the, the idea of sitting down to watch a film or, or watch the telly over at least the last 11 months have been pretty slow. <laughs> My film film I really like, uh, uh, the, the uh, Denzel Washington film called The Hurricane. Has anybody seen that? I haven't, actually. That's a great film. So, so uh, Denzel Washington plays um, Ruben Carter, who one of my boys is named after, who's a... Uh, uh, Oh, wow. A black uh, a boxer uh, framed for a, a, a crime uh, with sort of racial motivations there, but it's a powerhouse kind of performance from from Denzel Washington, who's who's just amazing. Um, awesome. I, I don't know; it's a particularly poetic story, but it's a true story. It's a good film, but there's just a few scenes in that that always kind of get me jumping up, you know. So I, I, that's a great, that's a great film. I think t- TV show I'll revert back to just because it's actually I've been watching a lot of it whilst I've been just in need of light, non-challenging humour um, is Modern Family. It's kind of what I've had on, oh, the yeah. background, had on in the background with the little extra time I've had these days. Because, um, yeah, I was off for a few days after we finished and I just kind of sat horizontally eating and watching that. And, um, yeah, it helped bring a smile to my face. So that's the best recommendation I can give at this stage. Brilliant. Cool. So then music? Music. Oh. Well, Fergus listens to terrible music, so I'll let him go first. <laughs> I've I've, um, I've just been spamming my Discover weekly recently, but I don't know why. But I just always default to Metallica as my in-car music, and I had a playlist created for if we did want to use um, did want to use music as a 
as a method of distraction whilst we were on the hill, which we never actually did, interestingly. Um, but the playlist there was actually a lot of classical sort of movie soundtrack stuff as well because I just nice. find that um, the more I can line it up with my heart rate and actually the mood I'm looking to create, the more mm-hmm. effective so there's a lot of Hans Zimmer, a lot of Lord of the Rings soundtrack, that sort of thing. Brilliant, brilliant. I found myself, found myself recently looking to that, listening to that whilst I've been cooking or walking the dogs recently. So I think as a genre, I've been um, engaging more in, with the classical music community recently. Well, I'm fascinated to see what Johnny's going to say now, having berated your music <laughs> taste. <laughs> Culture. His answers were so good, but nothing better to say. There's nothing wrong with Metallica, nor is there anything wrong with classical music. <laughs> to be fair, I don't even know if that's the case. As Fergus and I, uh, when we've travelled together, we've talked so much that we haven't listened to music together. So it was just I was just being a, uh, rude. Um, <laughs> while we were up there in the mountains, uh, uh, going back and forward to base camp, we we listened to a bit of DJ Shadow in in the car. I like. Um, I had a very eclectic taste in music, but DJ Shadow was something that Doug liked when it happened to come on on a shuffle, and we we dipped into that a little bit. Um, so nice. I'd say anybody anybody who's looking for a little bit of alternative hip hop, get into some DJ Shadow. Um, other than other than that, it's uh, yeah, it'd be di- it'd be difficult to isolate who's who's my favourite. So go for that one. Brilliant. And then moving to your other then, so this could be an app or an activity or a book or whatever comes to mind. A really left a field probably response from me. Something I do uh, and have done for many years is, is working in uh, training self protection. So, uh, as a combat uh, combat sports athlete, MMA, etc., for years, and, and a lot of that was born out of the idea that I needed to protect myself in kind of uh, dangerous situations. Uh, a book. Uh, my mentor, a guy called Jeff Thompson, wrote called Dead or Alive uh, uh, is, is an amazing book for anybody to read uh, to, uh, you know, understand the, the dangers that there are and, and not not scaremongering at all. But people tend to go around with their eyes kind of shut. To, you know, you see people kicking about in, in the, with their headphones on, blocked off from the world and all the rest of it. And, and Dead or Alive is a pretty descriptive way of understanding what those dangers are and, and how best to avoid them and how to deal with them should you need uh, or were you confronted by them. Pretty pretty harrowing at times uh, as a book because there's some wow. some uh, uh, documented uh, uh, descriptions of, of why people might need to defend themselves. But it's a Bible uh, for me, so I read that quite a lot. So Strange One, perhaps, Dead or Alive by Jeff Thompson. Have a look at that. It could save your life. I've just, uh, just finished Nims's book. Um, which is oh, nice. yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's an insight into insanity really um, and <laughs> drawing, drawing back to the inspiration sort of conversation earlier again like there's not many people that I'd sort of sit and reference as massive inspiration points for me because again I try and be quite introspective with that for no reason other than I've always found it quite I've found it quite effective for me but NIMS is just continuously stepping into what seems genuinely incomprehensibly impossible um, yeah, it is just absurd isn't it He's not battling things created by humans. He's not. He's working within constraints that are borderline hubristic. <laughs> and I think that's what I find um, so fascinating about it. And what's coming up next is just testament to that mindset. And for anyone that's interested in mountaineering or otherwise, I think it's just a, a really interesting way of better understanding what goes into something like that. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I knew I would. But um, yeah, just got to the end of it um, on... What day was they? Yeah, just got to the, on Sunday, Sunday the thirteenth. Finished it, and uh, thoroughly recommended. Put it that way. 
Well, the second person to suggest it, the first one was Nims, but <laughs> nonetheless. <laughs> That's a way I will happily, uh, happily put <laughs> <in>. <laughs> um, Okay, so absolute final question then. What is one thing that you guys think didn't receive enough focus in 2020 and that we should all endeavour to focus on in 2021? And I do wonder if I can predict your answer on this. I think... Um, <laughs> There's, there's almost two strands to this answer. One's political, one's not political, in the sense that mental health services, I don't think, have ever had enough focus. Um, mm-hmm. But I won't go any further into that from a sort of government or infrastructural point of view. But yeah, I think uh, I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't have much to say. We, we, we've got to, as a society, work within what, what we've got. And yeah. I think um, it's been very easy as individuals with the year that's been given to us to fall back and default to some sort of mental isolation or in some situations, I mean, physical isolation has been enforced, but the, the, the knock-on effect of that can be perpetuating that by disconnecting yourself further from the outside world. Um, and we all know how powerful human connection face-to-face can be. We've got to work with the next best thing, which is virtual. And I know we all have Zoom fatigue. There's lots of exhaustion going around, but simple, meaningful, top-line phone calls and conversations have been really useful for me. Um, but I feel like the much easier thing to do this year is to to push them away, thinking they're not going to help what is a very, very challenging situation. But the statistics are starting to trickle in on how challenging year this has actually been for suicide attempts, for actual mental health statistics. We won't know truly until next year what that actually looks like. But I think it's easy to say that 2020 has been a real challenge. 2021 is going to start similarly. Um and the most important thing from my experience, from a mental health point of view, that we can do is connect with human beings as frequently and as meaningfully as we can. Um, and I think we've not fallen into the trap because Johnny and I have been so connected throughout this entire process, been so connected with our partners and, and things on it. And we both know that we've always got a, a source to rely upon if we ever feel like we just need to vent or express how we're feeling. Uh, whereas it's easy to fall into the trap of not doing that this year. And I've kind of witnessed that firsthand with a few people. So, yeah, we have devices in our pockets that connect us with islands in the Atlantic Ocean that we've never heard of, for example. So we can connect with anyone, anywhere. So I think it's it's important that we do so with those that are closer around us and not fall into the trap of perpetuating an already negative situation. Yeah. You know what, I'm not even going to try and uh, expand on that at all. I think uh, I think it's a, it's a perfectly straightforward answer, certainly from our perspective. And you're right uh, that we could you could probably predict it. Uh, there's just not been enough focus on on making sure you know people people are open, communicative, or have the opportunity to be those things uh, in terms of mental health. I think the resources, uh, as Fergus alluded to, there needs to be much more work. Uh, on that, uh, I think locally as well as well as governmentally, um, mm-hmm. as, well as nationally, uh, I think the onus is on the individuals, um, and, and always is in most things anyway. So, um, but uh, allowing those individuals an opportunity to, uh, to to reach out is is key. So, I think uh, more could be done, uh, and more focus on on that being done would and should be um, a priority. Um, how that how that comes about, I don't know. We're, we're doing our bit. We're trying to do our bit. Hopefully, podcasts like this allow that kind of message to get out there and, and, and allowing us the, the the platform to have these conversations and a little bit of focus on the project, etc. Would be 
ideal. It's, it's one way of doing it, but uh, yeah, yeah, there, there's there's loads more could be done, should be done, and hopefully will be done. And there we go. I have to say, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, Fergus and Johnny are honestly just great guys with a really important message. And I think conversations like the ones they're sparking are exactly what's needed, um, especially after such an incredibly challenging 2020. So thanks again to them for coming on and sharing the astonishing achievement that was Project Vertical. I've been your host, Marcus Brown, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Osprey Podcast. Podcast.